Chapter Twenty Seven of the Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. Termination of the Reign of Catherine the Second from 1781 to 1786. Statue of Peter the Great. Alliance between Austria and Russia. Independence of the Crimea. The Khan of the Crimea. Vast preparations for war. National jealousies. Tolerant spirit of Catherine. Magnificent excursion to the Crimea. Commencement of hostilities. Anecdote of Paul peace new partition of poland treaty with austria and france hostility to liberty in france death of catherine her character catherine found time amidst all the cares of empire to devote special attention to the education of her grandchildren alexander and constantine who had been born during the five years which had now elapsed since the marriage of paul and maria for their instruction, as they advanced in years, she wrote several historical and moral essays of no small merit. The Tales of Chlor, Son of the Tsar, and The Little Samoyet are beautiful compositions from her pen, alike attractive to the mature and the youthful mind. The histories and essays she wrote for these children have since been collected and printed in French under the title of Bibliothèque des Grands Ducs Alexandre et Constantin. The Empress, about this time, resolved to erect in St. Petersburg a statue of Peter the Great, which should be worthy of his renown. A French artist, Monsieur Falconet, was engaged to execute this important work. He conceived a design of having, for a pedestal, a rugged rock to indicate the rude and unpolished character of the people to whom the emperor had introduced so many of the arts of civilization. Immediate search was made to find a suitable rock. About eight miles from the city, a huge boulder was discovered, forty-two feet long, thirty-two feet broad, and twenty-one feet high. It was found by geometric calculation that this enormous mass weighed three hundred millions, two hundred thousand pounds. It was necessary to transport it over heights and across morasses to the Neva, and there to float it down to the place of its destination. The boulder lay embedded a few feet in the ground, absolutely detached from all other rock, and with no similar substance anywhere in the vicinity. It would seem impossible that a mass so stupendous could be moved, but difficulties only roused the energies of Catherine. In the first place, a solid road was made for its passage. After four months' labor, with very ingenious machinery, the rock was raised so far as to enable them to slip under it heavy plates of brass, which rested upon cannon-balls five inches in diameter, and which balls ran in grooves of solid metal. Then by windlasses worked by four hundred men, it was slowly forced along its way. Having arrived at the Neva, it was floated down the river by what are called camels, that is, immense floating fabrics constructed with air chambers so as to render them very buoyant. 
The statue, as completed, is regarded as one of the grandest ever executed. The Tsar is represented as on horseback, ascending a steep rock, the summit of which he is resolved to attain. In an Asiatic dress, and crowned with laurel, he is pointing forward with his right hand, while with his left he holds the bridle of the magnificent charger on which he is mounted. The horse stands on his hind feet, bounding forward, trampling beneath a brazen serpent, emblematic of the opposition the monarch encountered and overcame. It bears a simple inscription, To Peter I, by Catherine II, 1782. The whole expense of the statue amounted to over four hundred thousand dollars, an immense sum for that day, when a dollar was worth more than many dollars now. At the close of the year 1782, the Emperor of Germany and Catherine II entered into an alliance for the more energetic prosecution of the war against the Turks. They issued very spirited proclamations, enumerating their grievances, and immediately appeared on the Turkish frontiers with vast armies. The attention of Catherine was constantly directed toward Constantinople, the acquisition of which city, with the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, was the object which, of all others, was the nearest to her heart. On the banks of the Dnieper, eighteen hundred miles from St. Petersburg, she laid the foundations of Kherson as a maritime port, and in an almost incredibly short time a city rose there containing forty thousand inhabitants. From its shipyards vessels of war were launched which struck terror into the Ottoman Empire. By previous wars it will be remembered that Crimea had been wrested from the Turks and declared to be independent, remaining nominally in the hands of the Tatars. Catherine II immediately took the Tatar Khan of the Crimea under her special protection, loaded him with favors, and thus assumed the guidance of his movements. He became enervated by luxury, learned to despise the rude manners of his countryman, engaged a Russian cook, and was served from silver plate. Instead of riding on horseback, he traveled in a splendid chariot, and even solicited a commission in the Russian army. Catherine contrived to foment a revolt against her protégé, the Khan, and then very kindly marched an army into the Crimea for his relief. She then, without any apology, took possession of the whole of the Crimea, and received the oath of allegiance from all the officers of the government. Indeed, there appears to have been no opposition to this measure. The Tatar Khan yielded with so much docility that he soon issued a manifesto in which he abdicated his throne and transferred the whole dominion of his country to Catherine. Turkey, exasperated, prepared herself furiously for war. Russia formed an alliance with the Emperor of Germany, and armies were soon in movement upon a scale such as even those war-scathed regions had never witnessed before. The Danube, throughout its whole course, was burdened with the barges of the Emperor of Germany, heavily laden with artillery, military stores, and troops. More than a hundred thousand men were marched down to the theater of conflict from Hungary. Fifteen hundred pieces of artillery were in the train of these vast armies of the German Emperor. The Russian force was equally efficient, as it directed its march through the plains of Poland, and floated down the waters of the Don and the Dnieper. 
the Turkish sultan was not wanting in energy. From all his widespread domains in Europe and Asia he marshaled his hosts, and engaged from other nations of Europe, and particularly from France, the most skillful officers and engineers, to induce into his armies European discipline and improvements in weapons of war. The Ottoman Porte issued a manifesto which was a very remarkable document both in vigor of style and nobility of sentiment. After severely denouncing the enormous encroachments of Russia, extending her dominions unscrupulously in every direction, the Sultan asked indignantly, What right can Russia have to territories annexed for ages to the dominions of the Porte? Should the Porte make such claims on any portion of the Russian dominions, would they not be repulsed? And can it be presumed that the sublime Porte, however desirous of peace, will acquiesce in wrong, which, however it may be disguised, reason and equity must deem absolute usurpation? What northern power has the Porte offended? Whose territories have the Ottoman troops invaded? In the country of what prince is the Turkish standard displayed? Content with the boundaries of empire assigned by God and the Prophet, the wishes of the Porte are for peace. But if the courts of Russia be determined in her claim and will not recede without the acquisition of territories which do not belong to her, the sublime Porte, appealing to the world for the justice of its proceedings, must prepare for war, relying on the decrees of heaven and confident in the interposition of the Prophet of Prophets and he will protect his faithful followers in the hour of every difficulty. No Mohammedan pen could have produced so vigorous a document. It was written by the English minister at Constantinople, Sir Robert Ainsley. Catherine II, apprehensive that, while all her armies were engaged on the banks of the Euxine, Sweden might attack her on the shores of the Baltic, decided to form a new treaty of peace with Gustavus III, an interview was arranged to take place at Fredericksham, a small but strongly fortified town upon the Gulf of Finland, the last town occupied by the Russians towards the frontiers of Sweden. The Empress repaired thither in a yacht on the 29th of June, 1783. Gustavus III, with his suite, met her at the appointed hour. Two contiguous houses were prepared, furnished with the utmost splendor, and connected by a gallery so that during the four days these sovereigns remained at Fredericksham, they could meet and converse at any time. There is still a picture existing, painted by the order of Catherine, representing the Empress and the Swedish monarch, in one of their most confidential interviews. Catherine II promised Gustavus that if he would faithfully remain neutral during her war with Turkey, she would, at its close, aid Sweden in gaining possession of Norway. The two sovereigns, having exchanged rich presents, separated, mutually delighted with each other. The Empress had now seventy thousand men on the frontiers of the Crimea, and a reserve of forty thousand on the march to strengthen them. A third army of great power was rendezvoused at Kiev. A large squadron of ships of war was ready for battle in the Sea of Azov, and another squadron was prepared to sail from the Baltic to the Mediterranean. England, alarmed by the growth of Russia, did everything in her power to stimulate the Turks to action. But the port, overawed by the force brought against her, notwithstanding the brave manifesto it had been induced to issue, sued for peace. 
Yielding to all the demands of Russia, a treaty was soon signed. Catherine gained undisputed possession of the Crimea, large portions of Circassia, the whole of the Black Sea, and also the free passage of the Dardanelles. Thus, without firing a gun, Russia gained several thousand square miles of territory, and an addition of more than a million and a half inhabitants, with commercial privileges which added greatly to the wealth of the empire. Catherine's fleet now rode triumphantly upon the Caspian, and she resolved to extend her dominions along the western shores of that inland sea. These vast regions were peopled by warlike tribes, ever engaged in hostilities against each other. Slowly but surely she advanced her conquests, and reared her fortresses through those barbaric wilds. At the same time she was pushing her acquisitions with equal sagacity and success along the shores of Kamchatka. With great vigor she encouraged her commercial caravans to penetrate China, and even open relations with Japan, obtaining from that zealous people permission to send a trading ship to their coast every year. No persons are so jealous of the encroachments of others as those who are least scrupulous in regard to the encroachments which they themselves make. The English government, whose boast it is that the sun, in its circuit of the globe, never ceases to shine on their dominions, watches with an eagle eye lest any other government on the globe should venture upon the most humble act of annexation. So it was with Catherine though adding to her vast dominions in every quarter, though appropriating alike in peace and in war all the territories she could lay her hands upon, she could inveigh against the inordinate ambition of other nations with the most surprising volubility. The increasing fame and power of Frederick II had for some time disturbed her equanimity, and she manifested great anxiety lest he should be guilty of the impropriety of annexing some petty duchy to his domains, since he had united with Catherine and Austria in the banditti partition of Poland, he had continually been making all the encroachments in his power, adding acres to his domains as Catherine added square leagues to hers. In precisely the same spirit, England, who was grasping at all the world, protested, with a most edifying devotion, to the claims and justice and humanity against the ambitious spirit of Russia. The beam did not exclude the vision of the moat. Catherine, offended by the opposition of England, retaliated by entering into a treaty of commerce with France, which deprived England of an important part of the Russian trade. The spirit of tolerance manifested by Catherine is worthy of all praise. During the whole of her reign she would not allow anyone to be persecuted, in the slightest degree, on the account of religious opinions. All the conquered provinces were protected in the free exercise of their religion. Lutherans, Calvinists, Moravians, Papists, Mohammedans, and pagans of all kinds not only enjoyed freedom of opinion and of worship but could alike aspire to any post, civil or military, of which they could prove themselves worthy. At one time, when urged by the hateful spirit of religious bigotry to frown upon some heresy, she replied, smiling, "'Poor wretches, since we know that they are to suffer so much and so long in the world to come, it is but reasonable that we should endeavor, by all means, to make their situation here as comfortable as we can.' Though Catherine II had many great defects of character, 
she had many virtues which those who have denounced her most severely might do well to imitate her crowning vice and the one which notwithstanding her virtues has consigned her name to shame was that she had a constant succession of lovers who by secret and very informal nuptial rites were bound to her for a season each one of whom was exchanged for another as caprice incited the spirit of national aggrandizement which influenced catherine was a spirit possessed to an equal extent at that time by every cabinet in christendom it was the great motive power of the age dismembered poland excites our sympathy but poland was as eager to share in the partition of other states as she was reluctant to submit to that operation herself in personal character catherine was humane tolerant self-denying and earnestly devoted to the welfare of her empire religious teachers of all denominations freely met at her table this christian liberality thus encouraged in the palace spread through the realm producing the most beneficial results on the occasion of a celebrated festival catherine gave a grand dinner party to ecclesiastics of all communities at the palace this entertainment she called the dinner of toleration the representatives of eight different forms of worship met around this hospitable table the instruction of the masses of the people occupied much of the attention of this extraordinary woman she commenced with founding schools in the large towns and then proceeded to the establishment of them in various parts of the country many normal schools were established for the education of teachers the empress herself attended the examinations and questioned the scholars on one of these occasions when a learned german professor of history was giving a lecture to some pupils gathered from the tribes of siberia the empress proposed an objection to some views he advanced the courtiers were shocked at the learned man's presumption in replying to the objection in the most conclusive manner the empress ever eager in the acquisition of knowledge admitted her mistake and thanked the professor for having rectified it with so much ability she purchased at a high price the libraries of de lambert and of voltaire immediately after the death of those illustrious men she also purchased the valuable cabinet of natural curiosities collected by professor Pallas. the most accomplished engineers she could obtain were sent to explore the mountains of caucasus and even to the frontiers of china when we consider the trackless deserts to be explored the inhospitable climes and barbarous nations to be encountered these were enterprises far more perilous than the circumnavigation of the globe the scientific expedition to china was escorted by a corps of eight hundred and ten chosen men led by one hundred and seven distinguished officers the savants were provided with everything which could be thought of to promote their comfort and to aid them in their explorations and three years were allotted as the probable term of service required by the mission at the same time a naval expedition was fitted out to explore the northern seas and ascertain the limits of the russian empire but the greatest work of catherine's reign was the completion of the canal which united the waters of the volga and the neva and thus established an inland navigation through all the countries which lie between the caspian sea and the baltic in the year seventeen eighty six the empress announced her intention of making a magnificent journey to the crimea 
in order to be crowned sovereign of her new conquests. This design was to be executed in the highest style of Oriental pomp, as the Empress was resolved to extend her sway over all the nations of the Tatars. But the Tatars of those unmeasured realms, informed of the contemplated movement, were alarmed, and immediately combined their energies for a determined resistance. The Grand Seigneur was also goaded to the most desperate exertions, for the Empress had formed the design, and the report was universally promulgated, of placing her second grandchild, Constantine, on the throne of Constantinople. The Empress set out on her triumphal journey to the Crimea on the 18th of January, 1787, accompanied by a magnificent suite. The sledges, large, commodious, and so lined with furs as to furnish luxurious coaches for repose, traveled night and day. Relays of horses were collected at all the stations, and immense bonfires blazed at night all along the road. Twenty-one days were occupied in the journey to Kiev, where the Empress was met by all the nobles of that portion of the empire. Here fifty magnificent galleys upon the ice of the Dnieper awaited the arrival of the Empress and the opening of the river. On the 6th of May the ice was gone, the barges were afloat, and the Empress with her suite embarked. The King of Poland, who had now assumed his old name of Count Poniatowski, here met in the barge of the Empress, his rival Stanislaus Augustus. The passage down the river in this lovely month of spring was like a fairy scene. The banks of the Dnieper were lined with villages constructed for the occasion. Peasants in the most picturesque costumes tended their flocks and attended to various industrial arts as the flotilla drifted by. The Emperor of Germany, Joseph II, met the Empress at Kaidak, from whence they proceeded together by land to Kherson. Here Catherine lodged in a palace, where a throne had been erected for the occasion which cost fourteen thousand dollars. The whole expense of this one journey exceeded seven millions of dollars. From Kherson the Empress proceeded to the inland part of the Crimean Peninsula. Her bodyguard consisted of an army of 150,000 men stationed at but a short distance from her. The entertainments in the Crimea were of the most gorgeous character and were arranged without any regard to expense. On the return of the Empress she reached St. Petersburg the end of July, having been absent six months and four days. All Europe was surprised at the supineness which the Sultan had manifested in allowing Catherine to prosecute her journey unobstructed, but Turkey was not then prepared for the commencement of hostilities. A squadron of thirty ships of war soon sailed from Constantinople and entered the Euxine. The Turks were apprehensive that the Greeks might rise and disarm them all before commencing the campaign. The Empress had equipped at Azov and Kherson eight ships of the line, twelve frigates, and two hundred gunboats. She had, in addition, a large squadron at Kronstadt, ready to sail for the Mediterranean. Eighty thousand soldiers were also on the march from Germany to Moldavia. Everything indicated that the entire overthrow of the Ottoman Empire was at hand. The thunders of battle soon commenced on the sea and on the land. Both parties fought with desperation. Russia and Austria endeavored to unite France with them in the attempt to dismember the Turkish Empire, as Poland had been partitioned. 
but france now stood in dread of the gigantic growth of both russia and of austria and was by no means disposed to strengthen those powers england was also secretly aiding the turks and sending them supplies influenced by the same jealousy against russia sweden ventured to enter into an alliance with the turks while prussia from the same motive secretly lent gustavus the third money and england sent him a fleet thus all of a sudden new and appalling dangers blazed upon russia so many troops had been sent to the crimea that catherine was quite unprepared for an attack from the swedish border the grand duke paul begged permission of his mother that he might join the army against the turks the empress refused her consent my intention wrote again the grand duke of going to fight against the ottomans is publicly known what will europe say in seeing that i do not carry it into effect europe will say catherine replied that the grand duke of russia is a dutiful son the appearance of the powerful Swedish fleet in the Baltic rendered it necessary for Catherine to recall the order for the squadron at Kronstadt to sail for the Mediterranean. The roar of artillery now reverberated alike along the shores of the Baltic and over the waves of the Euxine. Denmark and Norway were brought into the conflict, and all Europe was again the theatre of intrigues and battles. It would be a weary story to relate the numerous conflicts, defeats, and victories which ensued famine and pestilence desolated the regions where the turkish and russian armies were struggling army after army was destroyed until men began to grow scarce in the russian empire even the wilds of siberia were ransacked for exiles many of them were brought back to replenish the armies of the empress at length after a warfare of two years with about equal successes on both sides catherine and gustavus came to terms both equally glad to escape the blows which each gave the other this peace enabled russia to concentrate her energies upon turkey the turks now fell like grass before the scythe but the russian generals and soldiers were often as brutal as demons nominal christianity was no more merciful than was paganism count potemkin the leader of the russian army was one of the worst specimens of the old aristocracy which now in many parts of Europe have gone down into a grave whence it is hoped there can be no resurrection. The Turkish town of Ismail was taken in September 1790, after enormous slaughter. The French Revolution was at this time in rapid progress, and several Frenchmen were in the Russian army. To one of these, Colonel Langeron, Potemkin said, "'Colonel, your countrymen are a pack of madmen.' I would require only my grooms to stand by me, and we should soon bring them to their senses. Langeron replied, Prince, I do not think you would be able to do it with all your army. These words so exasperated the Russian general that he rose in a rage and threatened to send Langeron to Siberia. Conscious of the peril, the French colonel fled and entered into the service of the Austrians. Emissaries of Catherine were sent through all the Greek isles, to urge the Greeks to rise against the enemies of the cross and restore their country to independence. Many of the Greeks rose, and Constantinople was in consternation. A Grecian embassage waited upon Catherine, imploring her aid for the enfranchisement of their country, and that she would give them her grandson Constantine for a sovereign. On 20th of February, 1790, Joseph II, Emperor of Austria, died, and was succeeded by Leopold II who, yielding to the influence of Prussia, concluded a separate peace with the Porte, and left Catherine to contend alone with the Ottomans. 
The empress now saw that, notwithstanding her victories, Russia was exhausted, and that she could not hope for the immediate accomplishment of her ambitious projects, and she became desirous of peace. Through the mediation of England, terms of peace were proposed and acceded to in January 1792. In this war, it is estimated that Russia lost 200,000 men, Austria 130,000, and Turkey 330,000. Russia expended in this war, beneficial to none and ruinous alike to all, 200 millions of dollars. The Empress, thwarted in her designs upon Turkey, now turned to Poland. War was soon declared, her armies were soon sweeping over that ill-fated territory. Kosciusko fought like a hero for his country, but his troops were mercilessly butchered by Russian and Prussian armies. In triumph the Allies entered the gory streets of Warsaw, sent the king Stanislaus Augustus to exile on a small pension, and divided the remainder of Poland between them. Catherine now entered into the coalition of the European powers against Republican France. She consented to a treaty with England and Austria, by which she engaged to furnish an army of 80,000 men to crush the spirit of French liberty, on condition that those two powers should consent to her driving Turks out of Europe. Catherine was highly elated with this treaty. It was drawn up and was to be signed on the 6th of November, 1796. On the morning of that day the Empress, in her usual health and spirits, rose from the breakfast-table and retired to her closet. Not returning as soon as usual, some of her attendants entered and found her on the floor senseless. She had fallen in a fit of apoplexy, and died at ten o'clock in the evening of the next day without regaining consciousness or uttering a word, in the sixty-seventh year of her age, and after a reign of thirty-five years. Paul, who was at his country palace, being informed of his mother's death, and of his ascension to the throne, hastened to St. Petersburg. He ordered the tomb of Peter the Third to be opened, and placed the coffin by the side of that of the Empress, with a true love-knot reaching from one to the other, containing the inscription, under the circumstances supremely ridiculous, divided in life, united in death. They were both buried together with the most sumptuous funeral honors. The character of Catherine II is sufficiently portrayed in her marvelous history. The annals of past ages may be searched in vain for her parallel. Two passions were ever predominant with her, love and ambition. Her mind seemed incapable of exhaustion, and notwithstanding the number of her successive favorites, with whom she entered into the most guilty connections, no monarch ever reigned with more dignity or with a more undisputed sway. Under her reign, notwithstanding the desolating wars, Russia made rapid advances in power and civilization. She protected commerce, excited industry, cultivated the arts, encouraged learning, promoted manufactures, founded cities, dug canals, and developed in a thousand ways the wealth and resources of the country. She had so many vices that some have consigned her name to infamy, and so many virtues that others have advocated her canonization. By the most careful calculation, it is estimated that during the thirty-five years of the reign of Catherine, she added over four hundred thousand square miles to the territory of Russia, and six millions of inhabitants. It would be difficult to estimate the multitude of lives, and the amount of treasure expended in her ambitious wars. 
we know of no more affecting comment to be made upon the history of our world than that it presents such a bloody tragedy that even the career of Catherine does not stand out in any peculiar prominence of atrocity. God made man but a little lower than the angels. He is indeed fallen. End of chapter 27 Recording by Kevin Davidson www.blogordie.com